but I think there was some element of, I don't know if it was fear or safety. I remember somebody saying, you know, show business has two parts, show and business. And for whatever reason, I interpreted the business side of, I should probably understand the other part of this. If in any way, it'll be a part of my journey. And I think just the business part kind of overtook. All right. Welcome back to the Gravity Podcast. We're here today with my friend, Simeon Schnapper. Simeon, it is awesome to see you, your big, smiley, happy <laughs> face, and, and just awesome to have a chance to do this with you. Likewise. Let's start at the beginning. Talk to me about kind of early childhood, your memories of, of what your life was like, your family dynamics, where you're from, any of that really important early stuff. Early life. How many hours do we have? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll move through it. And I know life is really full, really, really full. It's a big question to start with. But, you know, just kind of tell me like what you remember about being a kid. What, what, what was life like for you? What was your, what were your yeah. parents like? You know, tell me more about where you were, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I um, had the benefit of having two really awesome parents. My uh, dad was one of the first Peace Corps volunteers in Nigeria, and my mom was one of the first Peace Corps volunteers in Ethiopia. And then um, they met uh, when they became Peace Corps directors, training other Peace Corps volunteers in Mogadishu in Somalia. Um, so that's kind of always been a big part of, of early life where, you know, quote unquote, I was a Peace Corps baby. So the earlier years were in various countries, with the last one being uh, Western Samoa, an island of Apia. My dad, who I still recall in like a lava lava, which is like a sarong and like a beard and never wearing a shirt and walking to get, you know, pails of water because there wasn't necessarily running water or electricity all the time and bringing that back to the home. One day he thought, you know, maybe this isn't the best place to raise a kid or kids. I have an older brother. and uh, We weren't feeling so great. I think I was always like covered in mosquitoes and my brother wasn't feeling so hot. And kind of overnight, we relocated to Chicago, Illinois. Hmm. I remember... Uh, walking outside of my bedroom and there was this dude in the hallway, a shaven man with like a three-piece suit. And I remember going, mom, who is that? And she's like, that's your dad. And mm. it was his first day uh, post-Peace Corps of working at Cyril Pharmaceuticals. It's a big uh, pharmaceutical company in the suburbs as the head of organizational development with um, a direct report who at the time was Donald Rumsfeld. So my, my whole orientation shifted kind of in a single day from, oh, wait, I'm this baby running around jumping into the ocean to, oh, now I'm living in Chicago and my dad's a suit. Uh, how old were you? God, I was like five-ish. Yeah. I mean, enough, 
enough so that the memory is still ingrained. Yeah. Yeah, the whole early life, you know, with the parents were, um, they just continued that whole ethos of Peace Corps, even if they were going a little more corporate, at least my dad at that point. And my mom also continued her work. She became president of the AAEJ, which was the American Association for Ethiopian Jewry, um, and helped to mastermind uh, one of the biggest humanitarian airlifts in history, Operation Solomon, where they uh, basically evacuated a bunch of Palashas, which are Ethiopian Jews, considered like the first Jewish tribe from uh, Ethiopia during the coup d'etat of Mengistu to Israel. Um, so growing up, freaking influence was, was always there. And I don't think there was ever a day in early childhood life where there was not a refugee um, either sleeping in a sleeping bag at the end of my bed or, you know, um, in the basement. Yeah, I mean, up until teen years, I, I honestly, I can't remember a time where there was not, um, you know, my mom and dad both doing all this great humanitarian work and opening up our home to Silees, immigrants, refugees, mostly from, you know, the time they had spent in East and West Africa, respectively. So it was a pretty uh, colorful, uh, colorful childhood in that respect. It was also in Rogers Park, Illinois. Um, so it's the north side of Chicago, which I think till this day is still considered, you know, one of the most ethnically uh, diverse neighborhoods in the world. So even in like grammar school, like, hey, mom, I'm going to go to, you know, what's his name's house after school? And just from a cuisine perspective, like the difference of African to Haitian to Moroccan, Filipino uh, food was... Uh, yeah, just uh, a big part of uh, of early childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so tell me, you know, what do you recall about like how you were being, you know, at that time? So I, I hear, you know, what you're observing, um, fascinating, right? And, and and having parents that are so committed to the world and to other people, and seeing your dad make that shift into corporate America, you know, what happens to you as a kid? What are you interested in? What kinds of things are you doing? You know, what path do you start to go down, you know, at those early ages? Yeah, I got really into theater. I just loved uh, doing plays and performing. I think, was I a lion? It's blurry memory. No, I wasn't a lion. I think it was like a shrub uh, in some Jewish community centers, like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe adaptation. But I just loved, that was a lot of early, early childhood and into my teen years and into, you know, adult years, just the film and theater and, you know, whatever happens when you're with a group of people in an ensemble. So, yeah, I was just doing a lot of plays, always like to make people laugh. Um, whether it was class clown or creative writing or, you know, where, whatever plays you could, you could do at that time uh, in Chicago. Um, and that, yeah, that was a focus. I think, you know, when people asked when I was growing up what I wanted to be, it was like, you know, actor, writer, director. That was always my thing. And the joke now, um, you know, fast forward 
you know, decades later, and, you know, primarily doing business, I, uh, I can attribute a lot of listening and give and take and empathy and success there from, you know, the roots in the theater. And it might just be one of the best characters I've ever played, that of a businessman. So. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So um, tell me, you know, kind of as you start to move through childhood and, and kind of, you know, into your very early adult life, you know, this idea of playing the role of a businessman, you know, I mean, we can kind of fast forward a bit and and circle back. I mean, your life really does seem to have kind of all come together around the work that you're doing now. Um, But were there any other kind of like, business aspects that were coming in as a kid? Were you entrepreneurial at all? Or was it really more this kind of idea of how to perform or a way to kind of be with various different people that you were learning in that, you know, kind of acting theater world? A little bit of both, I think. I mean, as I reflect back on just early entrepreneurial pursuits like in grade school, like, hey, can I buy a candy bar for a buck and sell it for two? Um, <laughs> I've just always had this inherent entrepreneurial bent of uh, how does this work? How do businesses work? How does society work? How does commerce work? How does finance work? Yeah, that was there, there pretty early. Um, and then in teen years, you know, started doing just different entrepreneurial ventures and kind of liked the idea of it as, a, you know, as a way to communicate um, with people as well. I think the performance thing, you know, to some extent, and even not so much performance, but just the theater itself, um, somewhat took a backseat in the teen years. Uh, and definitely uh, as I moved forward into you know, college where, yeah, I just started doing, you know, startups early on. And there's still probably a little part of me that, you know, still yearns for, like, there's something, I don't know, maybe it was around like late teens where I started to do tech stuff and business stuff. And there was a part of me that said, well, let me do this and I'll come back to the theater and the film and everything else. And a day became a week and a week became a month. And then several years went by and I hadn't done a play in a decade. I managed to make a feature film in between. Um, but the business world just kind of, kind of overtook everything and entrepreneurial pursuits overtook um, even if there was you know, great creativity in the business and using a lot of the same theater games and skill sets as a part of it. But yeah, uh, I didn't expect this to be psychotherapy, but I'm mm-hmm. reflecting on, there was some period where I just said, I'll, I'll get back to it. I'll get mm-hmm. back to it. Let me do this it, business. And, and do you have a sense as to what it was that was kind of calling you into the business world? You know, why was it that you were willing to kind of put that on the back burner? What was it about kind of the business piece that was drawing you there? Well, well I know I loved it, but there was also this 
you know, in my late teen years, going into college, I kind of wanted, and it didn't necessarily come from my parents. I'm not sure where it came from because they always followed their passion. You know, they were always money, business wasn't necessarily a concern. It was like, let's do the right thing and let's be passionate and the universe will provide. But I think there was some element of, I don't know if it was fear or safety. I remember somebody saying, you know, show business has two parts, show and business. And for whatever reason, I interpreted the business side of, I should probably understand the other part of this. If in any way, it'll be a part of my journey. And I think just the business part kind of overtook. There was also a period too, where I just really liked computers. So like early programming, you know, you know, Commodore 64, like that thing. And that became a lot of my early entrepreneurial pursuits, just technology stuff, like well before, you know, uh, internet and web browsers, which eventually became, you know, a big part of at least a decade of my life, just being on the tech side of all things. And some of my first exits and first businesses were around technology. So yeah, I just, I loved computers too. And that was another thing. It's like, okay, well, I like business and I really like computers. So started spinning up my first, I guess, first four rays into that. But to answer your question, yeah, there was some moment where I'm like, I gotta, I gotta know this stuff too. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get back to the show maybe, mm-hmm. or, or maybe yeah. the show or yeah, something like that. Yeah, And, and it might've, you know, just even been unconscious to some degree. I just was kind of curious, you know, and in your answer, like you knew you loved it. That's that's kind of you know good enough. I mean, I wondered if you know you saw your dad as a suit then. If there was some like, well, I better do what he's doing. But but tell me, what actually are you doing? Where do you go with this now? You put theater on the back burner, and you're going forward with the business side of things. I mean, and, and when is this? Like, are, are you know, in high school, college? You know, where are you kind of as you're, you know, starting to explore business? Yeah, it was probably later, um, certainly by college, but probably later high school. I had uh, the fortune of going to three different high schools, uh, two in Chicago. Uh, one was the Chicago Public High School. Did that for two and a half years. Kind of got bored with it, but it was like, there's got to be another angle of, of education. No discredit to the Chicago public school system, but uh, I don't know if I learned much when I was there. So an opportunity arose to go to a prestigious private school. Um, so then I transferred to a private school um, and just, I think I learned more in that single semester at that private school than I had learned in all of my education combined. Hmm. What was it that was, Yeah, what, what was catching it's just, you? It's just the quality of the teaching that a lot of the my fellow um, classmates, you know, had been going there since kindergarten. So it's just like, yeah, like the first paper we had to write was on the New Deal and... I just remember being in the class with like 20 other people who all became friends and still participating in like high school reunions and whatnot. Um, and I was just like, how are these like high schoolers? These should be like, each one could have written a book and they were just so articulate. And I mean, just some of the most educated and privileged people in the world, um, you know, is the, 
the sons and daughters of, I, I mean, it was a prestigious private school. So I just, I really opened up to that, but had that experience and said, okay, now I got this. And then I asked my parents, because um, we had visited uh, Donna a couple of years previously. I met my dad there. He was consulting at the time and kind of bummed around with him. It just really fell in love with West Africa, but specifically Ghana. And I remember saying, hey, um, do you guys mind if I finish high school in Ghana? And they're like, you know, of course, Peace Corps parents, pretty up. I'm like, sure, here's a one-way ticket and two grand. Good luck, kid. Mm. Um, so I finished high school in, uh, in Ghana, where, yeah, a couple of weeks into uh Ghana International School, which is a British school system, the headmistress assistant who I became friendly with said, are you planning to go to Oxford? And I'm like, probably not. Like, I'm probably going to go to a theater school or something, or maybe some liberal arts college. And she's like, well, you know, between you and me, you don't really have to finish. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we can create a transcript that's form five, and I was doing form six and form five is closer to like a senior in America. Uh-huh. And I'm like, really? I'm like, let's do it. So I still hung out because I was living with a Ghanaian family. Um, actually, this guy I met on the street when I first, I was 17 and I, when I, I landed in Accra, I stayed at a hotel, the, uh, was some sweet inn. And a friend I had made previously, this uh, Indian kid, Ravi, I remember, it's like, oh, you could just crash here. And the parents took me in. And um, about a month into that, there's this guy playing the flute. And I went up to him. I'm like, hey, nice job. And he goes, hi, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm Simeon. He's like, well, where do you live? I'm like, I live at that hotel. He's like, well, you want to come over for dinner? So I went to his compound. And he was living with, you know, 30 close relatives in this big compound that often didn't have electricity or running water. And uh, yeah, they invited me to move in with him. And he gave me his bedroom. So my senior year was living with this Ghanaian family, um, learning the language and the culture. But I'd go back to school because I'd get homesick for like, you know, Western things. And it was an international school. So I knew like, you know, the daughter of a diplomat would always say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner? Um, so I'd go back to school for a few reasons. One, to get good meals. Uh, two, I didn't really have to you know, participate much in the last year. So I started writing for the school newspaper. There was an advice column called Uncle Agony. And it was like relationship advice. But I was the, the, <laughs> the bi-weekly column that's called Uncle Agony. Um, and had co-writers in there, which is great because I just reconnected with um, one of my co-writers from back then who just left right, a few years ago to take over for Ariana Huffington at the oh. Huffington Post. And she's just That's left, great. but it's like she was a writer back then and she just kept on that track. And like yeah. a couple of years ago, I was like, what? What? Her? Like, yeah. you're what? <laughs> just, yeah. You know, one of my best friends from high school in Africa. Um yeah. So I did the paper and I produced plays with the British council players. So I got to direct and I was in a play with her and a brother, I remember, and other plays. 
Um, but it was really just one of the most amazing years because I had a 550 AT Yamaha motorcycle and I'd be able to jump on my bike and you know what? I'm going to go to Nigeria today. I'm going to go to Ivory Coast today. And then it was just all pre-cell phones. So there wasn't that connectivity to the rest of the world or checking my email. But yeah, I spent a lot of time in villages and drumming circles and just having a lot of fun. So anyway, I can't remember the origin well, of this original question. Yeah, well, well, um, that's okay. You know, what? what's interesting to me and, and I kind of... Um, have some envy over what I hear is this like real freedom. I mean, you know, you have these Peace Corps parents um, who aren't afraid that their son is, you know, in Ghana um, and, you know, you're on a motorcycle and you're exploring and you're, you know, it sounds like really pretty free and like, amazing, interesting, exciting. Like, is that what life was like for you? I mean, what a, what a wonderful time yeah, of life. It, it, it absolutely was. It's, it's one of my most cherished, you know, year, year and a half of my, of my life. It was just, you know, depending on the perspective, you know, I'll share that story with others. And it could be like, yeah, it's amazing and wild and experiencing. And others would be like, what, what kind of parenting was that? Uh-huh, right, you right, know, right. Like, sure, how sure. naive were your parents to trust that, yeah. you know, technically, you know, 17 alone in West Africa with, you know, so yeah, I, I you know, there's a double-edged sword to that type of parenting. Uh, you know, there, yeah. there was great freedom, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of, I want to say there wasn't supervision. But I didn't have a lot of the same rules, I remember, as, yeah. like, there was never, like, even swearing. Like, I never, like, okay, if, if you want to swear, you can swear. So I chose not to, because I was allowed yeah. to. It's like, you could, you know, you could come home whenever you want, no curfew. So I was always home on time. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to finish, you know, your meal. So I finished my meal. It was, I don't think they were doing reverse psychology, but if they were, they were really good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, as a parent, you kind of, um, you know, grow an appreciation for your parents, but you can also kind of realize just how hard it is to get it exactly right. You know, oh, do we give them freedom? Oh, do we give them too much freedom? You know, it's a tough, tough balance to, to get right. But um, in your case, what what happens? You've got this kind of freedom. You're exploring life. You know, you're creating, writing. You know, tell me. You know, where do you go from here? Yeah, immediately after Ghana, I um, and I was already into a bunch of like mystical consciousness stuff, starting in you know freshman year. So when I landed in Ghana, I met the head of PM, Transcendental Meditation. Mm-hmm. And he kind of took me under his wings. This guy, Neem, Nipadi. What a great, amazing dude. He had like this little garden right on the ocean. And he kind of took me through TM. And I just really got into it and kind of took me through it to a point where he probably wasn't supposed to share all the teachings. 
But I was so into that. And again, it was, you know, my senior year, I didn't have any responsibilities. I was, you know, doing yoga several hours a day. I was, you know, probably uh, easily a hundred pounds lighter, um, healthy, happy. And I said, well, it's really not university here. I should probably go to college. So the first college I went to, which lasted about a week, was uh, Maharishi International University in Fairfield, Iowa. Sure, yeah. And, and I went there because I was, you know, really <laughs> close with me who had just some, yeah, there were these times where I'd be hanging out with other people and they'd be like, what'd you do last night? And I was like, oh, you know, me came over for dinner. And they're like, well, what time? And I'd say the time, and they're like, well, that's impossible because he was at my place for dinner. And then it'd be like a third person at the table saying, well, he was also at my place for dinner. So I never got to the bottom of it, but the guy was pretty, like some crazy magic at a whole other level. I don't know if he actually replicated or, uh-huh. but it happened on a number of times. So I'm like, well, this is kind of crazy. Let me, let me dig into this a little more. Um, but when I got there, you know, the provost was basically like, well, you can't take these classes. I'm like, well, I already know all this stuff. So I just want to learn to levitate. And he's like, no, that's like, you know, six years down. I'm like, he's like, well, he probably shouldn't have given you all these teachings. So I don't know what to do. Um, I think at that point I started getting, I, I met his daughter and that didn't go well. <laughs> In fact, he was not happy about that who was also like leading a theater group there. Anyway, within a week, I was like, this isn't right. Um, and actually, my dad, I remember, drove in. He was elated. He thought it was a little too cultish. Uh-huh. Um, there was still open enrollment for Columbia College Chicago. And so I started Columbia College Chicago, the largest film and theater school in the world, which had also had a lot of teachers who were not just teaching, you know, theory, but actually working in the industry and specifically the Second City big improv theater in Chicago, um, which I had been training at. And I, it was my first job there washing dishes with, you know, guys like John Favreau and Farley and Steve Colbert and Carell who were just coming up. I was, you know, a young teen, but I love that. I love uh, the improv side. And then eventually, you know, taught there for about seven years and, and all that, but Columbia College was the one place where if you wanted to do anything around improv, that's it. You know, mm-hmm. that was like really one of the only schools that had such close proximity to comedy writing, the improv, etc. And it was, it was around college, I really got into the computer stuff mm-hmm. and then created a, a major, um, for two reasons. One, the major was two things I really liked, theater and academic computing. Uh, or computers, but I also was reading a scholarship that had this provision that they would award one scholarship to each department. Um, so I was reading the fine print and I was like, wait a minute, does this work for interdisciplinary majors? Uh, well, no one's ever really tried to submit. So I thought, well, what two departments would never coexist, kind of a shoe in to get the scholarship? And it was the theater department in academic computing. And my major became computer-controlled multimedia for the stage, in which I really got into the computer side of it. And one of my first businesses was an internet business. And 
Yeah, so it's really like around freshman year was the uh, kind of the business side of things. Um, and then, of course, you know, what I'm doing now, which is, you know, primarily, um, you know, venture capital and specifically around the, uh, you know, burgeoning mushrooming industry of psychedelics. Um, I started planting a lot of seeds, you know, even back in high school, and just reading as much as I could and having the great, you know, exposure to some of the great, you know, PsyOGs um, that had been doing a lot of the research and clinical trials and protocols, um, you know, previous to the Controlled Substances Act. So there's always kind of been a theatrical, a business, an appreciation of different, you know, levels of consciousness. But yeah, I mean, if I look back, it's, I don't know if there's a rhyme or reason of why I'm, you know, on this podcast right now. It yeah, all seems well, pretty random. Yeah, right. But, um, you know, I don't think it is. Tell me a little bit more about kind of the psychedelic aspect, the plant medicines, the um, the psychotherapy, the kind of passion for mental health and and you know, the kind of curiosity around, you know, consciousness, call it what you want, you know, tell me a little bit more about how that comes into your life in a significant way. Yeah, it came in um, shortly after, you know, probably the last day I was, you know, I I guess I'm always Jewish, but uh, it happened around my bar mitzvah. I remember going through this ritual and just not, uh, you know, full appreciation for the tradition and all all world religions uh, for the most part. But I was like, you know, the rhetoric of this stuff talks about spirituality and mysticism and, you know, started even back then uh, reading Kabbalah texts and the Merkaba mystics. And, but for whatever reason, just never met a qualified teacher in that tradition. So somewhere around 13, 14, you know, after the pomp and circumstance of this ritual, becoming a man, I started to like look for a deeper reason, deeper meaning, uh, a greater purpose. Telos uh, and Telemachus, uh, the, the idea of Telos, and probably... I found two books in the basement. They're in storage. One was Baba Ram Das's Richard Alpert's The Only Dance Theory, which is a little more obscure. And another paper written by John C. Lilly, who's a great, great scientist and researcher who did a lot with uh, Altered States of Consciousness. It's now a pretty old movie, but the, the movie Altered States starring William Hurt. I think he won some award probably in the early 80s. It was like, that was John C. Lilly. Um, you know, we introduced sensory deprivation and flow tanks and interspecies communication. He used to do a lot of ketamine and LSD with dolphins. Just cra- mm-hmm. So anyway, I just stumbled upon these two, two you know, pieces of literature and I, and I was like, what the hell is this? Mm-hmm. Like, I hadn't read anything, nothing in my, you know, leading up to the bar mitzvah provided any inkling that these other states of consciousness or happiness were remotely within reach. 
so yeah, those high school years were really, you know, formative and kind of, maybe that is why, like during, like now I could connect the dots from mm-hmm. those days in high school with the early experimentation around meditation, a lot of uh, molecules, um, being able to study with, with great teachers from, you know, notable folks like Robert Masters and Gene Houston, who wrote the book Varieties of Psychedelic Experiences, to great Tibetan masters, to you name it. Uh, I just, yeah, there was something around 13 or 14. It's like, there's got to be more to humanity. And, and of course, there was all, like, when we talk about mental health right now, it's all tied to something happening you know, whether it's psychologically or neurochemically or spiritually, whatever label you want, that that was my kind of door opening to, um, you know, also practicing compassion to some extent, which has led into where I'm at right now. Um, I remember being at a, an, an Ibogaine conference about seven years ago and met with a clinic and the guys were heart students of a great Tibetan master. And I'm like, why, why did you decide to do this? I began being a, a, a psychedelic that, or in the psychedelic family, I should say, some have debates whether it's a psychedelic, but um, a natural plant medicine that really helps with addiction and, and certainly helps with detox and withdrawal, whether it's opioids, uh, heroin, oxys, you name it. And I go, why'd you do this? And it was like, what, what could be a greater act of compassion than helping addicts? And I was just like, yeah, yeah. You can Mm. sit on your cushion and meditate and say these prayers, or you can actually do the work in the world. So as that was always much, you know, very much a big part of my path of, you know, Bodhicitta and helping others and just reflecting, like I'm happiest when I'm, and I think this is true of a lot of humanity when you're helping somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's just something happens neurochemically there. So Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, you know, it, 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 this is really fascinating because I want to kind of get to what you're doing now. Um, and what it's, what's really obvious to me is that you are kind of in a similar way to how you started to shift out of theater into business. You you found a way to really roll it all into one, where you're very much a businessman. I mean, you know, you're a venture capitalist. You mm-hmm. you know, you have a fund. There's, you know, as much finance and economic modeling and and all of the aspects of business in what you do and how you're evaluating other businesses, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, kind of like you created the major. And look, there's a lot of emphasis on the space right now, but you know, you've you've been in it a long time. It does seem very much um, kind of a part of something that seems to make a lot of sense that you take all of the experience that you had, you know, living in Ghana, having Peace Corps parents, you know, understanding theater and learning about, you know, what what is there to life and exploring that and studying with all the people you have, that you would pull that all together into what you're doing now. Um, it, that to me, I mean, certainly, you know, I'm just hearing, you know, your story in 40 minutes, but it, 
it seems to make sense. Do you, do you see it yeah. that way? Uh, I don't know how conscious it was, but I do see sure. it. Like, I mean, as I sit here right now, I'm kind of, uh, I don't know, like a kid in a candy shop. I get to sit in the middle of, um, you know, two different segments. I, on the one side, there's, you know, the molecules and consciousness and drugs, psychedelics, whatever you want to label that. Um, and on the other side, it's capital markets and early stage entrepreneurship and investing. And it's like, I don't know if I, I don't think I was consciously making this my current chapter, my current gig, because it didn't exist a few years ago. Right. You couldn't do this, right? Right. Um, so I don't know, maybe just the stars align, but it is a place where, you know, as I reflect and even listening to myself and trying to be somewhat objective, I go like, holy shit, this is like, I think I could be comfortable here. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, totally. for quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it probably isn't a conscious experience when it happens, but when you, you know, whether you think it's, you know, divine or it's just like you're, you know, have a resume that you're putting to use, um, whatever you believe. I, I believe it's it's more a part of a divine plan, but it's awesome. You're pulling it all together and this kind of space does emerge. Let, let's talk about it a little bit because, yeah. I mean, I, I could talk to you for days about the psychedelic plants and the work that they do. And that part's, you know, fascinating for me and and has been incredibly um, beneficial, uh, in my own life. Um, and I, and I love, you know, kind of how you said, like, you could sit on your, on your mat, you know, couch or whatever, or you could, you know, help addicts and, and like, boy, you know, I don't think there is, um, much greater work, you know, there's a lot of great work to be done, but, you know, seeing people suffer like that and knowing you can help them is, is pretty powerful. Um, you, so, so I guess that's kind of what I wanted to talk a little bit about is that, you know, you, you, yes, you're in business, you know, yes, there's all those business aspects and, and there's money to be made. I mean, this is a, a space that, you know, arguably is like a gold rush, you know, who mm -hmm. knows, you know, but it's potentially massively transformative and, and, uh, and, and when that happens, there's a lot of money to be made, but there's also a ton of real, really, really powerful work that can be done, transformation that can happen, whether it's just one addict or it's like a, a society, right? So tell me a little bit about kind of what it's like to be able to, you know, really lean in to do well, do good and to kind of still be on, on in a space that uh, many people that has a lot of stigma around it that many people are, are ashamed to talk about or critical of you know, talk a little bit about kind of what it's like to be doing what you're doing. Yeah. Let me start with the stigma. It's, it's definitely lessening. Good example would be a month or so ago. Great uncle didn't quite understand what I was into <laughs> majority of my life with the molecules or plant medicines, even cannabis, 
you know, read something in the New York Times about PTSD and vets. And he was like, oh, is that what you're doing? <laughs> right. Right. Hey, that's really cool. Good for you. From, you know, even a, a month before that article hit, it would have been like, oh, is it? Yeah, is he still in that, doing that drug thing, you know? Right, right, um, right, right. So, like, to get it from that, um, and I don't want to say he's, you know, myopic, closed-minded, uh, uber-conservative, uh, lives in the 50s, but I just did. Uh, so, for someone like that to say, hey, good job, good job. Yeah. Um, and seeing this, this, this whole narrative that, you know, there were these molecules and there were these modalities of healing people with, with great results. And then, you know, like in the early 70s with the Controlled Substances Act, it was like, uh-uh, you know, game over. So it's been, you know, in this space, it's, it's been dormant for 50 years. That's why a lot of people are calling it the Renaissance, the psychedelic Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And you have this time in history where it's this perfect storm of not just more research, not just shifts in regulatory uh, regimes, uh, not just uh, all the great efforts around cognitive liberty and, and what's called decriminalization, which is you know happening at a, a rapid clip, not just across the U.S. but the world, but money. Mm-hmm. You know, money is really that last component, and. This is, there's contention around this. You know, some of these molecules and the the healing that people have is so profound and it kind of shakes them at their core and makes them question everything around our societal structure. And more times than not, you know, money is viewed as a predatory, divisive, competitive, you know, capitalistic entity. That being said, the last part of the perfect storm is the beginning of capital markets and the fact that, yeah, there's going to be a people who make a lot of money. But as I you know, often reflect, I don't know why it's still in my head because I haven't watched it in 20 years, but I think it was Cabaret, Liza Minnelli and the song Money Makes the World Go Round. Um, but it's like it, that's, that's why there's, there's so much attention right now. And I think mm-hmm. if there was... There was not that opportunity for capital markets, for profit, for scaling early stage companies around the psychedelic industry. There wouldn't be this renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there'd be research. Yeah, there'd be some regulatory shift. But this is, you know, fuel on the fire or, you know, water on the soil or whatever metaphor. So I think that's a really big reason you're seeing this now and the stigma shifting. Um is that capital markets side of it? And, you know, in my role, like what's the responsible, sustainable, honorable side of, of the energy of money? And there is one if your intentions are good. Um, and it's not just about making money. Uh, but again, you know, it's a title of VC. We are beholden uh, to, to our mandate, which is investing in companies or LPs, so that they can have a return on investment. It's not a charity. Um, So there is going to be that component. But it is moving so fast. There's so many initiatives. Um, I, you know, we started deploying capital specifically and exclusively in the quote-unquote psychedelic domain at the end of 2019, thinking we'd, you know, all right, this is going to be, you know, five, 10 years. But finally, there's enough signals uh, I don't think anyone expected uh, 
you know, psychedelic companies on the NASDAQ um, with many more uh, about to announce um, capital markets, uh, universities now having curricula with psychedelic in the title, regulators looking at, wait, wait a minute, we have an opioid epidemic. Is there a way to cure this? We have massive depression and SSRIs, which accommodate a $100 billion plus business, don't really do the job for the majority of the people. Um, so it's kind of it kind of feels like, although I've been waiting for this moment, in a sense, for a few decades, it's kind of like it just happened overnight, um, this acceptance. So the stigma is really lessening. Um, and, I, you know, again, I'm so inside. It's hard for me to tell, but again, you know, great uncle says, hey, hey, good job. It's like, that would be the guy who would be the worst critic. And he's now saying, oh, I get it. This is different. This isn't, you know, recreational. This is healing people. And a lot of it's going to be medicalized. And uh, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Do do you worry that there could be so much attention that it's happening so fast that we could find ourselves in a situation again where there's some opposition that that utilizes some, I don't know, um, tragedy or something to really shut it down again. I mean, do you think we're over the hump um, because there's people like your uncle and politicians and you know the rumors of Musk and Branson and everyone else in Silicon right. Valley, you know, doing you know, 5-MEO at lunchtime, like, are we over the hump or do we have a lot of danger still? I mean, and it kind of speaks a little bit to the money piece, you know, this is why, you know, I'm invested with you and why I, um, a big part of why I wanted to be a part of what you're doing is because um, I believe it's, you're the right kind of person to be doing this, your intentions, you know, back to your, you know, qualifying criteria, I know are really good. Um, And so you can do good and you can do well because your intentions, I know from a character standpoint are exactly where they should be. But that's probably not true for everybody. When you see on an episode of Billions that the hedge phone guys are talking about, you know, fighting for the shaman, right? Like, this could get kind of messy and ugly. And, you know, do you think we run the risk of this going the wrong way? Uh, well, certainly the jury is out. Um, and that Billions episode was like, I've witnessed that already. Like, like that was not fiction. That is, you know, uh, I mean, it was from, it was, you know, a, a writer, but I've, I've I've seen that. I, I think there's so many different buckets and, and the perspectives around this. You know, the majority of the money coming into the space is coming into the space under, you know, the purview of acronyms like the DEA and the FDA. So it's a lot of the press is the medicalization. You know, I even, there was a a provider over uh, yesterday I was visiting with who just uh, uh, opened a few ketamine clinics here in New York. And he said something, it's like, it's, it's, it's real, it's real tricky business, you know, 
uh, medicalizing the mystical. Um, and I, I just, oh, and two, and we started brainstorming. Like, I haven't heard anyone suggest that, but the majority of the companies you're seeing in the news you're reading, uh, this is one bucket, is the medicalization. It's going through FDA trials. It's very biotech. It has to be approved. On the other hand, you're also seeing a, a, a groundswell around decrim in certain places saying, well, it's not legal and you can't buy it or you can't sell it. But if you're doing it, we're going to look the other way where it's the, the least of our priority. Um, and that's an area that needs to be monitored and supported because cognitive liberty and decrim makes a ton of sense. Um, and harm reduction. There's a few startups right now on, on the harm reduction front who are, you know, good actors who are saying, you know, it's the stuff in the New York Times and decrim. We don't want what happened in the past where someone, you know, called Tim Leary the most dangerous man in the world. Like, right. We don't want that to happen again. Um, so there, there has to be a level of engagement and buy-in from kind of all of humanity. Um, and it feels like it's open enough or opening enough because of all the good, good stuff coming out of the research when you meet a vet or you meet somebody who, you know, is suffering an intractable, debilitating mental health uh, disease and indication and they're healed from this. Like that's spilling over into, oh, there are the right ways to, to play with these, to to administer these, to experience these molecules, whether it's the medicalization or an indigenous, you know, uh, millennial old setting and protocol. Um, so, so, you know, to answer your question, I don't know. I, I certainly hope not. But, you know, these substances have been around for the last 50 years. And the reason they were scheduled, well, there's a whole... This could be a 50-hour podcast on why, you know, what happened in the early 70s around scheduling. But, you know, it was around this fear about these being used incorrectly or people freaking out or having a bad trip. Um, I feels like everything I'm reading in the media, the conversations I'm aware of now from, you know, the front of the Wall Street Journal to 60 Minutes is that there'll be a little more intelligence around this. And when I'm on the phone with anyone from the FDA and the DEA, it's a very different conversation because they know somebody, they themselves have suffered some mental illness. Um, mm -hmm. And with that, there's a support of it and let's get it right. And we have one shot. I don't know if we necessarily have one shot. And I don't know if you know the FDA path is... The best one on paper, it makes sense because it's the system we have and it's mm -hmm. the fastest way to get this to people. And you're starting to see that happen with, well, certainly ketamine, MDMAs, and psilocybin are kind of tied with MDMA a little further on, really just around PTSD, PTSD and psilocybin treating a whole bunch of other indications. But then, you know, another 50 classical psychedelics right in tow that could help pacify and heal people. Um. Simeon, let me ask you, um, as, uh, it, you know, you have really gone deep into this space. Um, personally, you know, you've, you've, 
you're looking at, I don't know how many deals, investments, you know, where you're seeing the ways, the many ways people are are coming at this. You know, even the the decrim, you know, the the, the decriminalization thing where people are looking the other way, it worries me a little bit. You know, I have a lot of people in my network. Um, we're doing an event here with Rick Doblin, and um, it's a YPO EO event, and yeah. and I, I I'm just amazed at how many people are signing up, want to know, you know, are interested, doing it, talking about it. Um, I I sometimes get a little uneasy because I have such a reverence for the work. I mean, I I think it's it's like the like it's it's really as spiritual as it gets and it needs to be treated that way. Um and I and I guess, you know, I I probably can back out a little bit further and trust that there's no wrong and nothing's really bad and it's all happening in a mm. a divine plan, but I I do think that the ego and um human nature can get in the way and and the divine plan could take you know 5 years or it could take 500 years depending on kind of how we are with it you know and and so i guess my question i'm getting to is knowing that you've studied with indigenous cultures and and really been deeply in places where this work is held with that reverence where do you suggest people start? I mean, I, I'm not somebody who generally likes to recommend psychedelics, despite the fact that I have such a, you know, a passion for what they can do, because I think it's scary and dangerous, and you better damn well know what you're getting into and have the right support and integration and you know all the other pieces that you need. Uh, around you and 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 be ready to you know not be able to unsee what you've seen you know where do you tell people to start or how do you suggest people kind of you know from a healthy way enter into this space the answer will shift depending on who's asking if it's someone who's going through you know launch you know any of the major indications you know, my recommendation is always finding qualified psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. Two, if you look at it, you know, from two sides of the spectrum, at least the current dialogue around psychedelics, some will say, well, it's, it can cure sickness or it can optimize wellness. Wellness. Um, so on, you know, the optimizing wellness, a lot of people want to explore altered states of consciousness. Consciousness, they want that edge. Microdosing is you know, becoming ever popular. Um, so it would, it would depend on, you know, it depend on the person and what they're trying to achieve. I think on the, on, on the right side of the optimizing wellness and the use of psychedelics and the, the microdosing trend, um, an anecdote of a gentleman who was microdosing I talked to a year ago um, was for a, a brand, microdosing brand. And it was really... It was, it kind of, it says, so, so, like, how's it been going? And he'd been microdosing for seven months. He's like, you know, I'm not sure, but my wife no longer thinks I'm an asshole. 
And just in that little clip, I was like, whoa, this was yeah. guy who was microdosing and self-perceptual. It didn't change anything else mm-hmm. to his protocol, his, his diet, anything. And he just kind of, for him, that specific person, it made him a little kinder. And then he got into it, his work relationships. He's now being accused of being a better listener and not a bad boss and all these other good things. So it, it really depends on what the person is looking for. And if it's, you know, an intractable mental health disorder or disease, then the route of, you know, finding qualified people, I would say medicalization uh, is kind of where it's going. But there's also the ability to sit in circles. And we're seeing a lot of that in the decrim. They're saying, hey, it's not just take these drugs because you need that support, whether it's a shaman, psychiatrist, you need some container to process this. Like, the psychedelic doesn't make the change. It kind of opens up uh, the possibility to make the change. And then it's a lot of hard work, you know, on that former former side. So it really depends. Obviously, you know, you had mentioned some names, uh, Rick and Matt's. And, you know, I think all the nonprofits who have been following forever are always the greatest places to start because it's usually informed. There's no bias about profit. Um, so starting with the Beckleys, the Hefters, the Mats, you know, just learning, seeing what they've been working on for the last decades is is a really good start. You also have, you know, about a half a dozen psychedelic media outlets that didn't even really exist up until the last couple of years and or really hard to find that are becoming more prominent. And those are always great, uh, great resources. Um, and then I think the last, you know, when people have questions, I'm still like, I delight in taking calls. It's like, hey, I have a question, like making introductions. So, um, you know, contacting me, I hope, um, I don't want to insult you, but I'm assuming there's 10 million listeners. I, I don't think I can accommodate 10 million emails. But, no, <laughs> you know, we're we're a little me. shy of that. So I think, you know, it might be okay to um, at least put your website in the show notes. How about that? Okay, that's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, Simeon. Um, just as we wrap up, you know, first of all, again, you know, just to reemphasize, I, I really think the importance of whose hands this is in really matters. Um, and I know that you and and JLS are really focused on supporting the right people and, you know, making sure this is done with integrity. And, uh, and I think it's, you know, really incredible work and, and it's very early in many ways, even though there's people like yourself and, and others who have been in the work for decades, this still feels like the beginning. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you for what you're doing and for taking some time to open up and share your story. Uh, any final thoughts you want to share with the audience? Um, no, no, no final thoughts. Just an appreciation to anyone who's listening and, and to you for hosting me. I mean, for me, it's been never been in the closet around these things, but it, it hasn't been for the last couple of years. I could totally open up about it. Um, so thank you for providing um, yet another uh, opportunity to just be open and, and honest and these are uh, this industry is 
millennia old, but also brand new. And just having a place in it is such a joy and a treat. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.